Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning and welcome. We're glad that you're here today. We trust that everybody had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, we will have a time of, of confession of sin of gluttony um, later in the service uh, for those that need to take advantage of that. Hopefully it wasn't too bad. But uh, you can see that we've immediately switched. It's, we're, we're into the Advent season. We've got our, uh, we're ready for Christmas now, and I'm sure some of you are probably, your homes are just the exact same way. As soon as that calendar turned over to Friday, Christmas music, Christmas lights, decorations went up, and so we're excited for the Advent season. We'll get to hear more from the, uh, as we sell, have the Advent candle later in just a moment, but uh, we want to begin this morning by uh, looking to the, to the word of the Lord. So uh, we're going to read Psalm 24 this morning that says, the earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein, for he has found, founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather in this place this morning, God, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be tuned, Lord, to give you praise this morning, to glorify you, God, because you are worthy of our praise, Lord. You are the King of glory. Lord, we thank you for the, uh, the abundance of blessings that you have shown upon us. Lord, we thank you for the, the, the ability to be able to gather here this morning, and I just pr pray, Lord, that you would uh, uh, help us to worship you, guide us in our worship of you this morning, Lord. Uh, Lord, we love you and we give you praise. In your name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand with us as we begin our worship this morning as we sing, O Worship the King. O Worship the King, all glorious above, O gratefully sing His wonderful love. Our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. Oh, tell of his might, oh, sing of his grace, whose robe is the light and canopy space. His chariots of wrath, the deep thunder clouds form, and dark is his path on the wings of the storm. And you alone are the matchless king. To you alone be all majesty. You glories and wonders what tongue can recite. You breathe in the air. You shine in the light. Oh, measureless might, ineffable love. While angels delight to worship above. 
Thy mercies, how tender, how firm to the end. Our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. And you alone are the matchless king. To you alone be all majesty. Your glories and wonders, what tongue can recite? You breathe in the air, you shine in the light. And you alone are the matchless king. To you alone be all majesty. Your glories and wonders, what tongue can recite? You breathe in the air, you shine in the light. Oh, worship the King, all glorious above, ungratefully sing His wonderful love. Amen. Take some time to greet one another around you and tell them you're glad that you're here. They're here this morning. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. If I could get you to take a seat, please. Good morning. So fun to see us encouraging one another. Warm greetings to you all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a fun time of year, the Advent season. A special thanks to Pastor Brian and our wonderful youth for getting our worship place ready for Advent. And yes, we have an opportunity to anticipate, which is what the meaning of the word Advent is, the coming, the anticipation of the promises of God coming to fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And over the next few weeks, as we have different family units coming forward, they're going to light candles. We're going to talk about the promises of old and how they were fulfilled during the Advent season. And of course, that girds us and strengthens us because if God kept all of his promises concerning the first coming of Christ, we know he surely will keep all of his promises concerning the second coming. And so we can live in eager anticipation of the coming kingdom one day, even as we celebrate the fact that Christ has already come as our Redeemer. As I said, each week we're going to have one of our family units come forward, light a candle, read some of the scriptures, tell us what the candle of the day is, and we get to kick off the Advent season this week with the fat girls coming and reading for us this morning. Good morning. Today we light the prophet's candle, which symbolizes the long era 
of eager anticipation of God keeping his promise of sending the Messiah, whose virgin birth was prophesied in Isaiah 7.14 and fulfilled in Luke 1.26 through 35. In this day and age where evil abounds and all seems lost, we have hope that the prophecies about Jesus' second arrival to earth will also be fulfilled just as completely as were the ones about his first arrival. Isaiah 7.14 reads, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Luke 1.26 through 35 reads, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the holy power the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we come before you today and thank you that you answer our prayers and give us hope. Help us to remember to keep our eyes and our hearts turned toward you. And may our hope in the Lord grow during this Advent season. These things we pray. Amen. certainly thankful for the promises of the Lord and one of those promises is that he would provide salvation so would you stand as we continue in our worship and sing the Lord is my salvation the grace of God has reached for me Pulled me from the raging sea, and I am safe on the solid ground. The Lord is my salvation. I will not fear when darkness falls, His strength will help me scale these walls. Tree. 
treasure of my longing soul. My God, like you, there is no other. True delight is found in you alone. Your grace so well too deep to fathom. Your love exceeds the heaven's reach. Your truth, a fount of perfect wisdom, my highest good and my unending need. Oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, 
strong defender of my weary heart, my sword to fight the cruel deceiver, and my shield against his hateful darts, my song when enemies surround me, my hope when tides of sorrows rise, my joy when trials are abounding, your faithfulness, my refuge in the night. Oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, gracious Savior, of my ruined life, my guilt laid cross laid on your shoulders. In my place, you suffered, bled, and died. You rose, the grave and death are conquered. You broke my bonds of sin and shame. Oh Lord and my Redeemer, may all my days bring glory to your name. You rose, the grave and death are conquered. You broke my bonds of sin and shame. Oh Lord, my rock and my Redeemer, may all my days Bring glory to your name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, and thank you for being here this morning. You know, I we can worship individually. You know, as we sing praises during the week to God, and as we read His Word, but when we come together, it just magnifies it. So thank you for being here so we can all share in that experience. And for those of you online, I know that you can only see what's going on. We long for you to be with us and worship with us. And we're happy that you can be with us online. So keep watching and uh, consider coming back if you can. So thank you very much for everybody that helped with the Thanksgiving potluck. It was, uh, I've been told I wasn't able to make it, but it was a very blessed time honoring and giving thanks to the Lord. So thank you for all those that participated and made it all happen. So our missionary of the month is Emma, Emily Hossessler. 
and um, we have, there's cards that you can pick up for her still, and we have, let me gather my thoughts, that we can uh, pray for her, and if you want to give a special blessing to her through finances, uh, use a blue envelope and mark it Mom, Missionary of the Month. So, Women's Ministries is having uh, Friday, December 10th, and um, see Carolia or Carol Hensel with that. And hopefully you can read, read the bulletin there. So Ruthie will be in the back um, for signing cards for our missionary, our military and service ministry people. And so she, this is a very um, hard time of the year for those people that are in the service and in the service and fire and police and stuff of everything being separated from their families. So please sign cards and um, so we can share a blessing with them. So December 12th, our family meeting. In your bulletin, you will see a budget. You will see a slate of officers. Um, so I need you to peruse that. There are a couple adjustments on the slate of officers, and we'll get that worked out for next week. But I, we'd like you to be informed and ready when you come. So, and we will discuss those things at that meeting. Would love to have you all here, whether you're members or not, it's so you can see how the family works together. Pastor's class. Uh, journey through the New Testament today at 11. There's room for you in that class. Uh, Christmas celebration, December 19th, 10 a.m. And uh, that'll be a joyous time of worship and music and praise to our Lord. There's room for the fellowship time for you to, to help serve coffee and make it and so talk to Amy White and, or Carol Hensel and uh, get on the list to, uh, to help the time of gathering after the service. New members class, um, three, the January 9th, 16th, and 23rd. So for those of you that have been a member for a while and would like to just be refreshed, come to the class. For those of you that are interested in becoming a member, come to that class. And the offering box is in the back. And um, there's blue envelopes if you have any special designation you'd like to do. So with that, let's turn to God's word. Um, Psalms 138. So I want to touch base on a couple things with that. If you look at... Um, Verse 1, it says that I sing before gods, and I had trouble with that word. And definition, when I look back through the, the anyway, researched it, that is kings, governors, angels, heavenly hosts. So that's, that's 
when you're praising like we did this morning and when you're praising other times. And then the other one that I just wanted to touch base on that says, I called to you and you answered me. And as, as you think about that, how many times do we call out to somebody, hey, how's your day? And we don't stop to listen to the answer. Are we so busy that we're not listening for God's answer unless it's so drastic? So as we stand and read God's word together, ponder these things. So would you stand with me as we read? I give thanks, Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of my soul is increased. All the kings of the earth shall give thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you in awe of who you are. Lord, when we search our souls, we realize we have no right to come before you. We are sinful people. But you gave us the gift of Jesus Christ, that now we can stand boldly before your throne. Father, as we celebrate that, this Advent season of that gift, may we slow down and realize what a gracious, holy God you are. Father, we just pray for, for those that can't be here and are shut in, Father, that you would just lift them up, that you would encourage them through this body of believers that we would visit or call or text, Father. Father, we just uh, pray for those in charge of our country and our city and our state. Lord, may they humble themselves before you and seek your wisdom and guidance and not neglect you at all. Father, we just pray for the ministry here and we think of pastor that will be up and share your word. Father, would you guard his tongue? Would you open our ears to hear your word, pure and true? Father, 
You have blessed us greatly. And we thank you and praise you for those blessings. Let us not take you for granted. And we just lay this time at your feet that you would be honored and glorified. In Christ's name, amen. At this time, our children can be dismissed. We invite the rest of you to stand as we continue in our worship, singing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, born to set Thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in Thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth Thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. People to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Now, thy gracious kingdom bring by thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. Sufficient merit raise us to thy glorious throne by thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone by thine all sufficient merit raise us to thy glorious throne. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. Such a delight to be with the people of God in the house of the Lord and singing his praises. I too want to give a word of thanks for the hard work that went into the Thanksgiving celebration we had last Sunday. It was really a phenomenal success. It was great to see this room full. It was great feasting and sharing and praising of the Lord. And it was just a great and blessed evening. So for all of the, the women's committee and other volunteers who put in hard work to get the room set up and then put the room back into place and all the serving, thank you. It was really a great blessing. And if you weren't able to be with us this year, get it on your calendar for next year and make every effort to be here. It is well worth it to be with the people of God just celebrating and feasting and enjoying being together 
we kind of missed that uh, last year when COVID kind of shut everything down. This would be a good time, if you haven't already, to make sure your cell phones are turned off so that you're not recorded and going out over YouTube and live in infamy for the one who interrupted the sermon. We, won't, we don't want that to happen. Um, I want to issue a little bit of a challenge over Advent. I want you right now to think of two or three people that don't know Christ. Start praying for them today. And pray for an opportunity to share Christ with them during the Advent season. This is a great time of year when people are longing for hope, they're longing for a sense of purpose, and they think they're going to find it in shopping, or caroling, or presents, or whatever the other things that the culture throws at us during this time, but we know the hope ultimately comes in Christ. But two or three people, all of us know two or three people that don't know Christ. May the Lord use us as a mouthpiece in their lives during this Advent season. In the city of Geneva, in the country of Switzerland, in the old part of town, there is what's called Bastion Park, where you find the Reformation Wall. It sits on the campus of the University of Geneva, which was founded by the reformer, John Calvin. The wall itself measures over 100 yards long and contains some of the marble statues of the great Protestant reformers, like John Calvin and John Knox and William Farrell, Theodore Beza. And all along this long wall and in this courtyard, there are numerous descriptions about the important events in the history of the Protestant Reformation. And in large letters in the center of this memorial wall in Latin is written the motto of the Reformation, post tenebrus lux which is translated as, after the darkness, light. It proclaims that the light of the gospel came back to the church after centuries of darkness, of superstition, of carnal power, of corrupt clergy, and of man-created politics and practices. Now, a few weeks ago, we celebrated the Reformation, and we're not going to do that again this morning, but it is good for us to return again and again to the themes because as we approach the end of our time in the book of Ruth, and even as we prepare for the Advent season, post tenebrous lux seems like a good theme. During the time of the book of Judges, in which the book of Ruth took place, it was a time of great moral compromise, of spiritual idolatry, Stubborn rebelliousness against God. And yet in the midst of that, the story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi shines like a beacon of light and hope. As the faithfulness of God is shown and how he's going to keep the line of promise going forward. And then we think of the world as it awaited the coming of the Messiah. It was living in darkness, great spiritual darkness. And when the light shone into the darkness, how great was that light and the hope. Well, this morning, it seems fitting that we finish up the book of Ruth, and we'll see that more as we get to the end of how it actually prepares us for the Advent season, as we see that God is still shining his light into the darkness. And no matter how difficult things might seem to us today, or things just not quite the way they should be, we need to keep in mind that God still has, is in control, hasn't taken a coffee break, 
his purposes will shine. His light will shine. And therefore, we can be a people full of hope, even when those around us might have a message that is contrary to that. So as we begin to spend some time in Ruth chapter 4, which by God's grace we hope to finish today, I invite you to stand if you're able as I read the first 12 verses of this chapter and as we hear from the Word of God. And our passage today, given by a gift of God the Holy Spirit to the people of God, begins, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of these sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off a sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Mahlon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have, brought, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord bless the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Thus ends the reading of the word. And now, Father, as we study this word, we need your help as only you can give it, that we might understand it, apply it, and rejoice in it. Guide us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to our first major point, which you can find in your sermon outline, and I hope you'll take notes during the sermon and be able to share with someone during the week the things that you are learning from the Word of God. But we get to our first point, setting the scene. Now, when we got to the end of chapter 3, we had a few questions left unanswered. What will happen to Ruth? Who will she marry? How will the prayers of Naomi and Boaz be answered? And as she awaited the actions of Boaz, Ruth was told simply to sit still. Wait, she was told, because the Redeemer is at work on her behalf. 
And I thought, what good advice for us today? There's times we're frenetic. There's times that we're frantic about what is going on. And really the counsel is, sit still. The Redeemer is at work on our behalf. Our God is a God of redemption. And he redeemed his people out of Egypt. And that served as a paradigm for understanding redemption all throughout the rest of the Bible. And yet, as God accomplished that redemption for his people, delivering them from slavery, passing them through the Red Sea towards the land of promise, he gave them promises and commands so that they might serve at times, as it were, as redeemers in their own right. For the law had provisions to take care of the widows, the orphans, the aliens of the land. This would provide for their redemption, as it were, redemption from poverty, from loneliness, from being estranged from the people. And all of these ideas of redemption, of people and land, of property, inheritance, of relationships, all of them find a climax as we get to this final chapter in the book of Ruth. And as we've seen, as we've gone through these chapters together, the drama has, has been building. And by the time we get to chapter 4, we're, we're just waiting for the final episode to reveal the conclusion so that there is a happy ending for which we long. And we see that right away, Boaz gets down to business. And he's the one that's going to be the center now of what's going to happen by and large in chapter 4. And though Ruth and Naomi are there, we actually don't hear them speaking again. The focus really turns to Boaz, his interaction with this other would-be redeemer, and then the reaction of the women as they see, wow, look what God has done for Naomi. So early in the morning, we're told in our text, Boaz goes down to the city. Now in those days, the city gates were these narrow tunnels through which people and animals and goods would go so that there was some control over what could come in and out of the city. This provided the protection of the city. And you may recall from our time in the book of Judges where we talked about the city gate that there would be these rooms off to the side of each of the city gates. And these rooms during the day would be used as places of social interaction, places where judicial decisions were decided, where business deals were made. And so most people would go through these gates, this gate throughout the day to conduct business, to go out and farm in the land that was around the city, or to people watch, which would have been a great place to meet people. So Boaz takes the initiative. He goes to the city gate early in the morning in a quest to solve the problem of Ruth. Well, if we take a little bit bigger picture at what things that have happened around the gate of Bethlehem, we find out that this was a place of great importance in biblical history. There was a well just inside the gate. And King David, when he was in the heat of battle, said, oh, I long to have a drink from the well just inside the gate. And there's this heroic effort to go and get water for the king who then pours it out as a, as a sacrifice and offering to the Lord. And outside the city gate, there would have been a threshing floor. And at this threshing floor was places where God would meet people. And so we have different encounters. But the point is things happen. Important things happen at the gate of Bethlehem. And if you notice there, it says, so verse 1 says, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down. And then we have the phrase, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. It just so happens that at the moment that Boaz goes and sits down, behold, the one with whom he wants to have meeting just happens to come by. And once again in the book of Ruth, we see the providence of God. He is orchestrating events, putting people in place at just the right time, in just the right situation, because it's his story. And he's showing us how he carried it out. 
Now, there's an interesting thing here. It goes on, and in, in, in my translation of, of God's word, it, in the ESV, it says, he said to the man who's not named, turn aside, friend. I think that there, there's more to it. Because I think the author here wants us to see a clear distinction between this man and Boaz. Now, the, the phrase in Arabic, I, I, I'm sorry, in Hebrew, I put it up there, transliterated, poloni almoni. It's just got a nice rhyme to it. It was intended to have a nice rhyme in Hebrew because it has, actually has no meaning. It's kind of like when we say it's a hodgepodge or it was helter-skelter. There's really not a definite meaning. You have to have the context when poloni almoni comes by. And the best way we might translate it is Mr. So-and-so. There's one, con one translation translates it as Joe Schmo. Joe Schmo came by. But I think it's a little better to just say Mr. So-and-so came by, which is actually how a modern Jewish translation of this verse renders it. So I don't want us to miss the point, though. This Mr. So-and-so is never named. And we've seen in the book of Ruth that names are very important in driving the story forward. And we learn about the meaning of each of the names of the people and how they add to the story. But here's this person who's just a so-and-so, a Poloni Almoni, and we don't know what his name is. That's intentional on the part of the author, of course, under the direction of God the Holy Spirit. So Boaz gets the attention of this Mr. So-and-so, and then he goes out and seeks ten elders of the city... And these elders were the ones who would help make important decisions. They would govern civic affairs. And in other places in the Old Testament, the elders are the ones who would settle disputes involving asylum cities or inheritance issues and even sit over murder trials. These were kind of the, the judge and jury, as it were, the governors of the city. We're not told why he picked 10. Perhaps that was the minimum number for a quorum for an official judicial matter. But now... It takes on a judicial feel. There is a legal matter that is taking place here. Boaz is seated with Poloni Almoni, and there's 10 elders of the city, and there's going to be a legal matter that is going to be set up. So this is setting the scene of what's going to happen in chapter 4, and then we get to settling the situation. Now we can imagine that Boaz has prepared his strategy you recall last time that there was this unusual encounter on the threshing floor. Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night and what's this woman doing here? And he makes a promise to her, I will do as you have asked. And we can imagine then that sleep was difficult to come by for both Boaz and Ruth as they're thinking about what's going to happen the next day. And so we can imagine that the mind of Boaz is thinking, what is my strategy going to be? That I will keep the promise to to Naomi, keep the promise to Ruth. And so it begins with a good proposal. Boaz takes charge of the situation, and we'll see that in this dialogue, it's actually him that does most of the talking. This other Poloni Almoni only says just a few words. But he says, we've got a situation here with our relative, Elimelech. We see that in verse 3. And so by saying that our relative probably means that they're not the brothers of Elimelech. They're probably something like the nephews or the cousins. But there's a family matter that involves the land, that involves inheritance. And all of this was very important in Old Testament history. Because God, when he brought the people of Israel into the land, he parceled it out. 
to tribes. And then the tribes had it parceled out to the families and the clans. And it was important that the land remained with those families and clans and within the tribes. And so there's some tension here. What's going to happen to this land that is available? And I think we want to give a little more definition to what is meant here by selling the land. Now, we think in one terms, we think it's just the passing of ownership from one to the other. But if we understand the larger context, that land had to stay within a family or clan or tribe. And land would often be used for more than one purpose. Moreover, it's not clear under the Old Testament law that widows had the right to sell the land of their husbands. But what they could do was lease it. They could rent it out. It could be used for other purposes from which they would then use that to live. That was a way that widows could be provided for. And so Naomi couldn't get rid of it because it would be part of the family inheritance, but she had no way of being taken care of unless the land was used. So the land could be leased, rented. Uh, The crops that would be grown would go to the leasee, but the, the, the fees of the lease would go back to Naomi. That's one possible solution. The other one is when Elimelech left, somebody took over the use of the land, but it was not a legal transfer, and so they're buying back whatever he wanted to use from that land. But what's clear by Boaz saying, this is our relative Elimelech, and this is involving his sons because they're mentioned a couple of times, Machlon and Kilion, this land has to somehow be taken care of so that the inheritance and the name of these sons go forward. And that somehow this needs to take care of this widow that is in need. Now, Boaz knows exactly the details. And he's going to make an offer. And he makes an offer in verse 4. And in verse 4, he says, so I thought I would tell you of it. Now, it's interesting. That phrase, I will tell you of it, literally means I, will, I thought I would open your ears. It's a great expression. I think every mother should learn this expression when they talk to their children. I thought it would open your ears because we know that oftentimes children aren't always having their ears open. Uh, It might come from an ancient practice where oftentimes both men and women, because of the sun of the desert areas, would wear head coverings that would cover. The idea is pulling the cover back or parting the hair back so you literally had direct access to the ear. I will open your ear. I thought I would tell you. And here's this attractive offer. Naomi needs to be taken care of. And so... This kinsman redeemer would recognize this land has to stay somehow within the family, within the tribe. So when this offer is made, we've got to take care of Naomi. We've got to take care of this land. It has to stay within the family of Elimelech somehow. So he's thinking, I can get control of this land and I can make sure it stays within the family. But then when Naomi dies, it comes to me because there are no sons that Naomi would have. This seems like a good inheritance, a good, a good way of going about it. The only way it would not become fully mine and my family is if Naomi had a son. But she seems to be a little past the marrying age or the, at least the childbearing age, so it doesn't seem like a very big risk. I'll just pay the land to use the land to redeem it so that Naomi can live. And while Naomi is living off the proceeds of the land, when she dies, it becomes completely under control of my family, so it stays within this tribe, within this larger clan. And that's what he's thinking. A little bit of risk now, a lot more reward later. And so Boaz, when he gives this offer, says, well, you redeem it. And he's thinking, yeah, a cheap land acquisition. I can take care of this widow and her widowhood. And then as soon as she passes away, it comes to me. 
and it stays within the land. It's not technically sold in the sense that it's sold outside the tribe, but it's passed within the tribe, within the clan. So we've had this good proposal. And then Boaz goes on and gives a giant problem. It's almost like he's a master negotiator. He throws it out and says, look, you're going to get this land. You can use it. You, you, know, you know you have to take care of Naomi. But then he goes on and he says, well, Mr. So-and-so, I need to add to the story. You see, it involves our relative Elimelech who had sons. And so it's not enough just that the widow of Elimelech be taken care of. It is also the widows of the sons of Elimelech must be taken care of. And he says that very clearly by mentioning them. And so, Mr. So-and-so, you can pay for the use of the land and take care of Naomi, but it's not enough. You need to take care of now of Ruth, who has come back. And moreover, because, and you saw it twice in our reading, to perpetuate the name of the dead, you need to start a family with this Ruth, and all of the sons then will carry forward the name of their father and the name of Elimelech so that it stays. And so you need to take care of the widow. You need to take care of, of Ruth. You need to take care of Naomi. I'm sorry. You need to take care of Ruth. And moreover, her son is the one that will inherit the land. And now he starts thinking, whoa, this is a little bit more than what I was bargaining for. And what's going on behind all of this? Well, one of the things that's going on behind all of this is that in Israel it was considered a curse to have your name wiped out and forgotten and your land given to another. And so it was seen that, that children were tied in with the, the promise of land, the promise of a name, the promise of prosperity. And if that didn't happen, it was considered a curse because the idea was they wanted your name needed to be spoken of after you died. So... Boaz is reminding this Mr. So-and-so of the cultural obligations of what the law is expecting in this situation. So now Mr. So-and-so, he does a recalculation. And he starts thinking, well, this started out as a sweet land deal. It was looking like it was going to go really well for me. I mean, I have a little bit of investment. I'll take care of this widow. Then it'll come to me and my sons. But you're telling me I have to take care of her, and now there's this other widow, and I know according to Israelite marriage laws, I have to provide a son. That's what's expected, and it'll go to that son. Ugh. Moreover, if I have other sons, do they not eventually affect the own inheritance that I have right now with what we presume to be his first family? And he's thinking this is getting more and more expensive all the time. And so he's looking for a way to back out, and he, he, he faces reality, and he says, I can't. I can't redeem it. It'll, it's too costly. One commentator, as he was looking at this, said, well, when Mr. So-and-so did a recalculation, he backed away from the land deal faster than a man faced with a coiled rattlesnake. <laughs> he said, I don't want any part of this, and I'm going to back away. And Boaz knows what he's doing. Now, Boaz has been using divine wisdom all throughout this, but he gets the response. Mr. So-and-so declines the offer. He's thinking in terms of just his personal issues, his personal family, his personal situation, not necessarily the greater expectation of society that he might be part of, involving, uh, of the solution of helping widows and orphans. And so he counts the cost of this redemption and backs away. He acts just like a Mr. So-and-so, and we don't know his name to this point. 
And this is the second time in the story that someone comes up really close to being part of the plan of God, can be involved in helping the people of God, and walks away. Orpah walks with Naomi and Ruth for a season and then walks away. And Mr. So-and-so was right at the point where he could have been part of God's solution for the situation, but was only thinking in terms of what was good for him, not was good for the greater cause. And so he walked away. He clung to what he knew, and as a result, he lost something of far greater value, something bigger than he could have ever imagined. And so he's just known as Mr. So-and-so, Poloni Almoni. We don't know his name. And so what he really wanted to have happen and go forward was that his name would be remembered, he would be talked about, now disappears off the pages of Scripture. He did not act according to what chesed, covenant love, loyalty, devotion would require. And that's one of the main themes of the book of Ruth, is how God shows his covenant love, devotion, loyalty, commitment, and how that is often shown through the main characters of the book of Ruth as well. David Strain in his commentary writes, whoever seeks to make his own name at the expense of others loses his name in the end. Whereas whoever risks it all to redeem others finds that his name is remembered in the end. Those that act according to the laws of chesed, according to this covenant love, this doing what is best for the other person, even where there is cost, because there's always cost in redemption. Those who risk so that others benefit will themselves benefit. But in face of this giant problem, this man walks away. And so we have a shoe-in situation, a shoe-in solution. Boaz will step in and he will act like Ruth in a way that is not expected. It was not expected that Ruth would abandon father and mother and hometown and culture and religion to follow with the people of God. And she was blessed because she did. So Boaz will do beyond what is just the human calculations. He will act with divine wisdom. He will act with divine mercy. And we see that in a sense he has led this Poloni Almoni right into the place where he wanted him to be. And he's going to get what he was striving for. He's going to be the agent of God in the redemption of this woman and the continuation of the promise that God had given to his people. And at this point then, as, as we can imagine these negotiations going on, the, the crowd is wa- watching, the elders are watching, in Boaz's mind, he recognizes mission accomplished. He's, he's going to accomplish his goals. And you can imagine then, since he had given that promise, I will see that you are redeemed. There has to be a sense of excitement in his mind. The final obstacles are being lifted. I'll be able to do what it is that I should do. And then we have this strange exchange in verse 7. The passing off of the shoe. Now the author gives us a sidebar in verse 7. He tells us what the meaning is, that this was to confirm that a transaction was taking place. And yet we still try to figure out exactly what that shoe is supposed to represent. Somehow ownership is involved. 
We're not told exactly how ownership was involved, but perhaps something from the life of Joshua shed some light. You see, Joshua was told that when he entered the promised land, wherever he set his foot or his shoe, wherever he walked, that would be his inheritance. Perhaps there's symbolism here where this man recognizes, I'm going to give you my shoe, and I'm never going to step on this property because it won't belong to me, it'll belong to you, and this is a sign that it's of ownership, it's now in your hands. This is the transfer. That's the clearest thing that we're told is simply is a transfer of control or availability to this land by the giving of the shoe. And we could expect then the one that who receives the shoe would keep the shoe because it would be a what reminder that the land is now under his control and his possession. This exchange has taken place. Now what's interesting is the word that is translated exchange here is used in other contexts to talk about a substitution in the context of sacrifice or a contract. And so by the giving of the shoe, by this transaction, there is substitution of the one who could gain control, but now it will go to the other. So the situation now is being settled. It's as if the first redeemer is saying, I can't do it, you walk in my shoes and take control of this land that will belong to you. So that's settling the situation, but it's still not done. Third, they need to secure the settlement. And as we read between the lines there, we can see that now two groups have formed. There are the elders, and then there are the others. We can imagine the onlookers who, uh, look, if this is the city gate, and you're going by, and you can see things going on in these rooms, what's going to be the attraction? Well, what's going on in here? And they overhear, and they want to be witnesses to what's going on, and they get part of the conversation. So there's at least two groups there, and Boaz will address both of them. And as they secure the settlement, we have a twofold affirmation. Boaz begins with a question. You are witnesses, in verse 9. And he's going to say, I'm asking you to be witnesses about two things. One is that I'm redeeming. I have the right to redeem this land. And did you notice that he said it belongs to Elimelech and Kilian and Mahlon? See, he understands the social consequences that you're to keep the name of the dead, the, the inheritance going through the sons, and even says that it has to perpetuate their name, that the inheritance stays with them. So that's his first thing. He understands now he's going to take Ruth as his wife, and he is going to start a family with her, and the sons that come from that will carry on the name of Mahlon and Elimelech. We see that the redemption now is involving Naomi, it's involving Ruth, it's involving her children, it's involving her grandchildren. We see God working things out so that wholeness returns to a situation that seemed empty. So that's the first thing. I'm going to redeem the land, and then he says, I'm going to take this Moabite as my wife. And this is the first time now we learn whose wife she was. We've seen Kilian and Mahlon mentioned in the text, but now there's the, the, the matching is done. She was Mahlon's wife. So that as Boaz takes her, he says, I will perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. Now, we have two potential redeemers here. We have Mr. So-and-so, and we have Boaz. 
And both of them will take risk. The risks are the same for both of them. But they reach a very different conclusion about what they will do. Both know that this redemption will be costly at some level. But it is Boaz who acts according to the covenant mercy of God, who displays chesed, who is willing to pay the price that redemption will come to others, even if it costs them. And that is what redemption does. That is what redemption looks like. It is willing to pay the price. And if we think about the ultimate redemption that we're going to celebrate at Christmas, the redemption that delivered us from sin, that delivered us from the fear of death, that prepared for us an eternal inheritance, cost the eternal Son of God to leave the glories of heaven, to come and live among us, to be humiliated, to suffer, to be killed. A redemption was costly. Boaz gives just a foreshadowing that redemption always costs the Redeemer something so that the recipients of redemption receive it without cost to them. So Boaz shows us it's worth it to redeem others. Then we get to the threefold blessing. Yes, we are witnesses, they declare, and when this statement is made, it is now a legal matter that has been settled. The shoe has been handed over, the agreement has been reached, and there's a marriage announcement. And what I find interesting is that marriage in this context is seen both as a private matter and a public matter. And as God designed it, that is what marriage is supposed to be. Marriage is not just a personal matter. It's a very public matter. Because each individual marriage affects the larger family, which affects the larger culture. And so that's why there's always the call to public testimony and public witness about the marriage that is coming together. Now that is a very contrary thought to what many people think today. But I think we, we need to recognize that, for example, if I talk about my faith in Jesus Christ, my faith in Jesus Christ is a personal matter, but it is not a private matter. There are public and outward implications of my faith in Jesus Christ because I can only live it out publicly, so it needs to be seen. It's the same way as we join the church. It is a personal relationship, a personal decision, but it is not private. It is lived out in the covenant of believers. And here they, they recognize the communal aspect of the impact of marriage as they pr pronounce it and as they say what the impact will be. And notice the blessings that they pronounce on Boaz and Ruth. First they say we are witnesses, and then they give the threefold blessing. They pray for her fertility. May your wife be like Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah were the matriarchs of Israel. They built up Israel. And with this designation now as the wife of Boaz, who is compared to the matriarchs of Israel, Ruth has now gained full status as a citizen of the commonwealth of Israel. 
She confesses the same God as Boaz. She is now joined with Boaz. And the witnesses there testify that she is joining the community of believers, even praying that she would be like one of the matriarchs of Israel. This shows them that this personal matter is not just private. It becomes very public in its impact on the people of God in that time. So they pray for Ruth to be a matriarch. They pray for Boaz to be like a patriarch. Basically saying we... We ask that you would be prospered, that you would be powerful, that you would have great influence through this new marriage that is forming, not only in Ephrathah, the tribe, but Bethlehem, or the Ephrathah, the clan, Bethlehem, the tribe, if you will, how they all work together, that your name would continue through this union, that your name would continue in honor and recognition. Because as we said, the Israelites believed that a person ceased to exist if his name was not mentioned after his death. It was like a curse. And so you wanted to continue to be mentioned in the line that would be perpetuated through the inheritance, through the ongoing generations that would come. And you know, their prayer was answered. Because the name of Boaz is, has been, and will be mentioned long after his earthly departure. As we see that God is responding and blessing his faithfulness so that the faithfulness of God can be seen in the faithfulness of Boaz, and his name is being remembered. We see the Hesed of God continues to move forward. So if they pray for Ruth to be like a matriarch, if they pray for Boaz to be like a patriarch, they pray then that the house of the two would be like Perez. Now that's an interesting prayer for them to be offering. We know that the tribe of Perez gained an influence and prominence in the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah must be the messianic line. But how many of us know the story about Perez? Perez came about because of an illicit relationship between Tamar and her father-in-law. Grocery aisle scandal right there, right? And they're saying, may you be like the family of Perez. Now, Tamar for, her, Tamar, for her part, was a schemer. What she did, humanly speaking, was not right. And certainly what Judah did was not right. And yet look at how the mercy and grace of God conquers even the wickedness and unfaithfulness of people. And so they're saying, may your house become like this house that has been prominent. Oh, it had a bad beginning. But because of the mercy of God, it grew in its prominence, and God is using it today. And if Perez, or, or Tamar, this wicked woman, can be used in such a way, how much more Ruth, this Moabite, who's coming into the commonwealth of Israel, how much can she be used? And may she become, a, with Boaz, a house that is great within their tribe. So we see that within the, the understanding of Israelite life, the, the idea of family, of land, of tribes, of children, of marriage, all permeating throughout this story. Because what happens to one affects the many. And that what Boaz and Ruth will do would not just affect them, it would affect others. Because as we said, marriage is not just a private ceremony, it is also a public witness of God's covenantal faithfulness. What we see here is 
God, you see, God's point of view on marriage and how marriage is to be held as sacred. Marriage is to be held as beautiful. It is a covenant. It is the bringing together, and it has a personal application, of course, but a public impact as people live according to the principles of God. So we have the securing of the settlement, and now we get to our next point, which is a son is born. A son is born, and let's continue in our reading of the text. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, the word here is Yahweh, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman, women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, who is the father of Jesse, the father of David. All comes together now. The land, the inheritance, the name, the family, marriage, children, it all comes together in this point, and there's joy. Boaz takes Ruth. The language just simply means brings her into his house. It means they've gotten married. And notice that Ruth now has advanced in her social standing. She started out as a foreigner. We were told that in, verse, in chapter 1. And then she took the lowest name of slave, slave of slaves. And then in chapter 3, we saw that she referred to herself as a handmaiden. And now in chapter 4, she's a wife. The grace of God has lifted her up in her standing. That's what the grace of God does. Because Ruth wanted to go God's way and enjoy the people of God. And was blessed by God as a result. That's what chesed does. The covenant love of God lifts up and gives honor to those that will honor the Lord first. And so we see a blessed redeemer. In this story, a stranger has been brought near by a redeemer. Mo uh, the Moabite, a stranger from a foreign place, a woman is brought near by a redeemer of Israel who brings her into the commonwealth of Israel. And it foreshadows the gospel of what Jesus did for us. And Paul brings it all together in Ephesians 2 when he's talking to Gentiles and say, we were the ones that were the foreigners. We were the ones that were away from the promises of God. But by the mercy of Christ, our Redeemer, we were brought near so that we might be part of the people of God. That's what the grace of God does. So through this act of Boaz, his acts of mercy, the recognition of what has happened from the, the elders and their blessing, Ruth is now considered a full Israelite. She's part of the family of Israel, the tribe of Judah, the wife of a noble and righteous man. She has left it all to join God's people. And you remember the prayer that Boaz had on her behalf in chapter 2, may the Lord repay you for all that you have done. And we get to chapter 4 and we see that God has answered the prayer of Boaz because Ruth has been repaid. There's a reward in following the Lord. There's a reward in forsaking all to follow the path of the Lord, which is what Ruth modeled for us. Years later, 
a greater redeemer than Boaz, would affirm the very same teaching when he cried out in Matthew 19. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or child or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. God puts his call in our life. There is nothing that is more valuable than following his call. And no matter what we think we're giving up, he will more than fill in that which we think we've given up and what we might be lacking. There's a celebration of a marriage. And we are told that the one who had been barren for 10 years is now given conception. It's an active verb. The Lord gave her conception. The Lord is the one who's in control. He opens the womb. He closes the womb. But what I see in this as far as our contemporary application is look how God is intimately involved in the formation of every human child. Using human instruments to form a human child, which means we must be pro-life always and everywhere. Seeing the full humanity of the unborn child. Because God does. Because he's the one that gave it. And so from the time of conception to the time of natural death, we will be a pro-life generation because God is the giver of life and only he is the one who can be the taker of life. Now, in the book of Ruth, this is only the second time where God is said to act directly. In chapter 1, it said, and the Lord gave his people bread. That was the first one, chapter 1. Here in chapter 4, and the Lord gave her conception. Now, of course, God has been in control all throughout but it shows that God is driving the story forward. He is the one who has made sure that this line of promise will go forward. And we can sense the joy that is coming off the text. Because fulfillment is taking place. And notice as the women gather around Naomi, there is joy. There's a son who is born who will be the hope of Naomi and Ruth. And look at the response of the women. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And we, we as a people, we rejoice when a, when a baby comes into the world. We rejoice when a difficult situation has, has been made right. When a, when a surprise, as it were, has come into a situation. And that's what's happening here. And we might say, well, who is this redeemer? And our first reaction might be, well, it's Boaz. Boaz is the redeemer that's spoken of here. But that's not what the women are saying. They're saying that it's this child who will be your redeemer because he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher in your old age. And we might literally translate that phrase as the one who will sustain you in your gray hair because that's what the original language says. The women are saying, a son has been born to you who will bring redemption. And there's joy. So as we look over this story, the story of Ruth, of Boaz, of Naomi. There are several potential redeemers in this story. There's the first would-be redeemer who failed because he didn't want to count the cost, didn't want to pay the cost. There's Boaz who was a true redeemer and a noble man of virtue who gave dignity and opportunity to this woman and to the line of her sons. And he was the father of another redeemer Obed, who will take care of Naomi in her old age. 
But of course, we know the rest of the story. Because this line of redemption that is keeping forward in the, through the line of David will ultimately culminate in the ultimate redeemer who would come through the line of David. The text we read this morning out of Luke chapter 1 of the line of David, this greater redeemer, this greater son of Boaz who would bring about a greater redemption. So as one commentator, Barry Webb, says, the first redeemer didn't love. The second redeemer loved. The third redeemer was God's gift of love to Ruth and Boaz. And the fourth redeemer, the one who is yet to come at the time of Ruth, is the one who will be God's gift of love to all of his children. And so there's praise here. People are praising the Lord. They're blessing Naomi. Let his name be carried forward, this son that will be born to you. May his, not be, may his name not be wiped out. But then they say something astonishing. This daughter-in-law who loves you, who is worth more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Flowery language. Language of honor. Especially when we realize that in Israelite culture, sons were considered the crown of the Israelite home. And the ideal Israelite home had seven sons. And they're so overjoyed at what God has done. They're saying it's even better than what might be the ideal Israelite home. Because this one, this daughter-in-law, left everything to go with you. They're praising her nobility. They're praising your character. They're seeing that she has embodied what the law and what the word of God would say to do. And so as there's been this blessed redeemer, we see the consequences of moving from emptiness to fullness. And the greatness and mercy of God, famine and barrenness and death has been replaced by birth, bread, and life. And we have this tender moment where a fulfilled grandmother is enjoying her grandson and will be involved in his life. It will be the sign and the fulfillment of the promise of God that the name of her husband and the name of her sons will go forward and she will have a part in his child. And God is, has restored that which has been lost. The one who called herself bitter when the story began is now the one who is once again pleasant, as her name implies. Hungry stomachs that came back not full are now full because of the harvest of bread. Empty hands have now been made full. Names that were under threat of being lost now have assurance that the name will continue forward. Life has replaced death. And even Elimelech's name will continue to be talked about because there is now an inheritance and a heritage that will come long afterward. As we conclude our time in the book of Ruth, yeah, sorry, quickly, the, the name Obed, it literally means servant. And whose servant will he be? The servant of Naomi, but also ultimately of God. Moving forward to the genealogy at the end, a king is coming. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nasho. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. In the providence of God, in his goodness and in his mercy, he used this Moabite woman 
who showed faithfulness to God and his people to keep the line of promise going forward. And this son who was Obed would be the father of Jesse, who would be the grandfather of the great King David. The book of Ruth starts with, in the days the judges judged. And that follows up the book of Judges saying, when there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this book ends with promise to the king who is to come. It ends with genealogy. Probably the last place we would start in our study of any book. And yet it is very important to understand the story as it's going forward because God is involved in every genealogy. Showing the connections, past and present, of how God was working through people and places and events. And also shows us, as a subtle reminder, that we're not our own. We're part of a larger community that impacts the communities and, and uh, generations that come after us. There are ten generations mentioned here. More than likely covered a longer period. In fact, if we begin to compare genealogies, there were some people that were jumped over. That happens in every biblical genealogy. Because the authors have intentions behind why they're presenting the names to show how God has been working. But here there are ten that is mentioned as a, a reminder of God's grace. And there's symmetry. And there is also honor shown even in these genealogies. Boaz is mentioned seventh, which in Jewish lore was considered the position of honor. If you were mentioned in the seventh place in a genealogy, it was a position of honor. I don't have time to uh, elaborate more on that now. But every word of God is placed where it is for a purpose. And here, Boaz is seventh, the position of honor in the genealogy. And then there's something interesting that happens in the larger picture, and that is where the 10th person is mentioned, a covenant happens. Noah, Noah was mentioned 10th and enters into a, uh, a covenant with God. Abraham is mentioned 10th and enters into a covenant with God. Here David is mentioned 10th as we will enter into a covenant with God that will lead to the greatest covenant of all. So as God is in control of this whole story, there is no accidents, no coincidences. No, God is working it all through. He's doing more through this story than any of the individual members could have imagined. And as it ends with the book of David, it goes off, uh, with the name of David, it goes off into the stories to show how David became the king of Israel. And in the genius of how the Bible is put together, we're able to track and see how the storyline develops under the guiding hand of God. So as we get to the end, there's messianic hope in the book of Ruth because it ends with the mention of David, who is the one who will be the focal point of messianic hope all throughout the Old Testament and is the one that is mentioned right away in the beginning of the birth narratives of Jesus. And so it gets us ready for Advent. It gets us ready that through the son of David, the line of David, God's promise will continue to go forward. He will continue to show his chesed. He will continue to show how he's redeeming people from all kinds of situations. And it prepares us for, just as Naomi rejoices over the birth of a son, 
the people of God will one day rejoice over the birth of a son. That is the fulfillment of the initial promise given through this son because God will keep his promises. The book of Ruth shows us that the people who long for bread and hope will be found one day ultimately in the one who would be the bread of life and the hope of all the nations. It is found in the act of a redeemer who in the time of Ruth risked everything to take to himself a bride, pointing forward to the one who would come from heaven and risk everything to purchase it for himself, a bride that will last unto eternity. It is found in the one who is given as a son so that redemption may come to the people of God. It is found in the one who is the expression of the chesed of God in all of its fullness that will be good news of great joy for all the people as a small group of people rejoice in the birth of Obed. A larger group of people down through eternity will rejoice in the birth of one greater than Obed, the one to whom Obed would ultimately point. So how do we prepare then for Advent? How do we summarize the message of the book of Ruth? Well, first we see that God is sovereign in all things. He makes no mistakes. There's no errant message. There's no errant messenger. God is working it all. And if that is true, my friends, believe it. And then live accordingly. That'll affect how you respond. That'll affect how you think. It'll reflect how you plan. Because if God is sovereign, we're to live it and believe it. God answered the prayers again and again of Naomi, Boaz, and Ruth. He still answers prayer today. He still wants to hear your prayers today. The different situations that you're in. Chesed is the mark of God and his people. In an angry, hostile world, we can reflect the goodness of God to a people who desperately need to see it and hear it. That's why I gave you the challenge of praying for two or three during this Advent season. Because God is faithful to his promises. Far beyond anything we can ask or imagine, he keeps his promises because that is the kind of God he is. Therefore, we can trust him. And the redemption that he displayed in the story of Ruth and Naomi points us forward to a greater redemption that we will celebrate a billion, billion, billion years from now our redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. The story of Ruth then, as we come to its end, pointing to the messianic line. This woman in a difficult circumstance, risking being misunderstood, will do what God says. So it prepares us for the story of the mother of Jesus, of Mary, who in very different circumstances, but had a very same response. Yes, Lord, I will do as you say. Father, as we turn to you now, we thank you for the book of Ruth. It challenges us at so many levels because we want to turn it into a simple love story. But Father, it's so much more than that. It is your love for your people and working through imperfect people. Father, we see in ourselves how much we need a Redeemer. We see in ourselves that we were of no reputation. We were outside of the covenant of grace and mercy. 
that you were pleased to reveal yourself to us and draw us in. And we're so thankful. We feel like Ruth, we were the outsider, and now we've become the insider. So, Father, as we contemplate Advent, the coming of Christ, as we contemplate the Christmas season, as we contemplate your chesed, your covenant love, what would you have us do in response to reflect that love to those around us? That we might be the redeemer for someone pointing to a greater redeemer. We're a needy people, Father. Would you help us? And would you glorify Jesus in our Advent season as we pray in his wonderful name? Amen. Would you stand as we sing, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of your love, leading onward, leading homeward, your glorious rest above. deep, deep love, all I need and trust is the deep, deep love of Jesus. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, spread his praise from shore to shore, how he came to pay our ransom. Through the saving cross he bore, how he watches o'er his loved ones, those he died to make his own, how for them he's interceding, pleading now before the throne. Oh, the deep, deep love, all I need trust is the deep, deep love of Jesus. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, far surpassing all the rest. It's an ocean full of blessing in the midst of every test. Oh, the deep, deep love Jesus, mighty Savior, precious friend, you will bring us home to glory where your love will never end. Oh, the deep, deep love, all I need and trust is the deep, deep love of Jesus. Deep, deep love, all I need and trust is.
or three names registered here that you're going to pray for over the next few weeks, reaching out to them with the gospel. Hope you have a chance to stay around and fellowship with one another. And it's so good for us to be entering the Advent season, the deep, deep love of Jesus, and we reflect on it more and more over the next few weeks. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forevermore. Let us go in peace and have a wonderful Lord's Day.